Last week, Jesus on the cross, hands crossed out. He said, it is finished. That's chapter 19. We still got a couple more chapters to go. All right, so the plan of, of us being saved, the plan of our, our penalty being paid, that was all finished. But the gospel's not done. So you guys go ahead and open up your Bible to chapter 20. We will see that that, that was the end of our, our debt to be paid, but it wasn't the final act of Jesus. Because we'll see that Jesus not only saved lives, but he gives life. And we're going to be looking at some of that today. Um, as many of you know, if you don't, I apologize for the spoiler alert, but Jesus does not stay in the tomb. Right? Jesus raises Right? He, he went to the tomb, he died to save our lives, and then he does something that only a true lifesaver can do, is he saves our lives, and then he gave us this life. So this morning we're going to look at how a true lifesaver doesn't just save lives, but he also gives life. Let me give you a, I'm going to say a quick example, it's not quick at all, but let me give you an example today uh, that is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. On Thursday, there was an injury that happened in a football game. And so everybody is talking about this professional athlete that had a a brain injury, a pretty substantial one, and everybody is starting to talk about it. Over the last several days, I've heard countless players, both current and former. I've heard executives, they've been on every news channel and every sports thing, debating this whole thing on is football worth it? This is the question that they're doing. And almost all of their arguments begin the exact same way. This player, right, whether he's former or current, will say this, football saved my life. As a young man, I was growing up in some low-income housing neighborhood. My family was in shambles. Somebody in my family or somebody close to me, whether it be a, a parent or a sibling or a grandparent or a friend, somebody was working two jobs just to keep me in school, just to provide enough so that I, I could eat and go to school. Right? All my friends were in gangs. I was in trouble with the law. There was lots of drug dealers that I was surrounded with. I had no chance at life outside of football, and football saved my life. One guy was very honest. He said this. He said, because of football, my kids are getting a way better education than I am. My wife had the opportunity to decide, was I going to work or not work? She was a lawyer. She, she said she could have made a, a, a lot of money and we could have gained those things. But because of football, she had the decision. She had the option to work or not work. He said, my parents live in a nicer house than anybody could have ever imagined 20 years ago. And my parents go on vacation whenever and wherever they want. And it is all because of football. And he's saying right now, football saved my life, but as I sit in this chair, I'm asking myself, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And then he went on to talk about so many football players that had these severe medical issues of their bones and ligaments and joints and all these injuries that they sustained that physically they're sewn back together like a rag doll, right? And they're just going through their lives. And then their, their, their bodies aren't functioning properly, they're not working properly, and I'm sitting there listening going, man, this ain't good. And then he says, those are the lucky ones. Right? Those are the lucky ones. And he went on to talk about guys who had these severe brain injuries. And now evidence is starting to point to those injuries as being the cause of severe mental damage, leading to severe depression and suicides. 
and even murder suicides in some cases, and he started listing situations, one after the other, of players that had either committed suicide or that had killed somebody because of these brain injuries. And now he's saying, and now he fears that those same things could possibly happen to him. Right? He, he had played football just for several years. His whole life he had dedicated to train and all these sacrifices that he made. And then he goes to the NFL and he plays, I don't know how long his career was, 3.3 years I think is the average for an NFL player. It's funny, that's about the same for a pastor. But he, he, he goes for some portion of this small portion of his life and now for the rest of his life he's living in fear. Did he get injured? Was his brain injured that this might happen to him? And during this interview, he said, football saved my life, but I'm still waiting, right? I'm still living in fear that one of those things might happen to me, right? That I might hurt myself, or I might hurt somebody I love, or I might hurt somebody else, and I don't know. And if it does, then none of this is worth it. And he's living in this fear over and over and over. And as he's talking, I think the thing that was most heartbreaking to me, the thing that got my attention is he's talking to this panel of of former players, they were all nodding their heads in agreement. They were all acknowledging that they have that same fear that, that they are dealing with. And as I listened to their stories, it made it clear that football did not save their life. Right? Football may have changed their life. It didn't save their life. He's now living in fear. That doesn't sound like life-saving to me. And it sure doesn't sound like life-giving that every day you're wondering, is this the worst thing that's going to happen? Is something else going to happen? And as I was listening to that and I was thinking, I, I realized that this idea of something that may have saved our lives, but really it's only taken our life, is not confined or isolated to professional NFL players. Right? This is something that all of society, all of humanity deals with. This is a very common situation. It doesn't take much to look around and realize that you need saving. It doesn't take much to look at your life and say, man, there's something broken here. There's something I need to do. There's something I, I need to make it better. It doesn't take this realization to, to, to know that we need life saving. And in our own brokenness, in our own lives, we search for all sorts of things to give us life. Man, just a few weeks ago, we, we heard a baptiz- baptism testimony, and this lady shared with the church family that she looked to relationships to give her life, right? She went on to say she looked to narcotics and drugs and, and alcohol to give her life. They didn't, right? They just took portions of her life. For many of us, and something that, that we have to be honest with ourselves, we look to our profession, we look to our career. That's where we find our identity. That's the thing that gives us life. And we get so wrapped up in our profession. We get so wrapped up in our career. Right? We're saying that's what's going to give me life. But if we're really, really honest with you, with ourselves, that doesn't give us life. That takes life. Right? We, we pour into something that just gives us empty promises in return. Some of us turn to our families to save our lives. And I have seen so many families destroy lives only because people believe that their family would save their life. Right? People have compromised their integrity and their morals. They've extended themselves to the point of destroying themselves in hopes that their family would save their life. 
we have this ability as humans to think that there's something that we can do to give us life. Right? If we just work hard enough at it, if we just sacrifice enough, if we just paint the picture to those around us that we have uh, life-giving abilities, that would be good enough. None, none of that saves your life. And, and many of you know, you've tried and you've realized, none of that will save your life. It's just empty promises. But Jesus saved your life. And when we look in, verse, in chapter 20, we'll see that Jesus in his conversations with his disciples, he teaches them and through these writings he teaches us that he is the one true life giver. That he did not just die to save your life, but he died and rose again to give you life. And in this chapter we're going to look at this morning, Jesus has three conversations. First he has it with Mary Magdalene. Then he has another conversation with, um, let's just say, 10 plus of his disciples. We know that Judas is gone at this point, and we know that, that Thomas wasn't there. Right? We know that the other 10 were probably there, and there was probably other disciples, and he has a conversation with them in a room. And then finally, we'll look at his conversation with Thomas. He'll have a conversation with his disciple Thomas. And in each of these conversations, Jesus teaches us about the life that he gives us through the resurrection. Yes, he saved our lives on the cross, but not only did he save our lives, he gave us lives, life. Let's look at these three aspects that we have um, of Jesus through the resurrection, these three life-giving events. We're going to start in chapter 20. We're going to read uh, the first section, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So just to catch you up on, on where we are right now, this is the, the, before the Passover. We know that Jesus was um, crucified. We know that Jesus was hung on a cross. And then before the, the Passover celebration began, two of his disciples, Nicodemus and, and um, uh, Joseph, they go uh, and pull him off the cross, and they go take him to Joseph's tomb. Um, they started the burial process, but they did not finish that process on Friday night. And so what happens is they leave, and then we see that Mary Magdalene, and we see through the other Gospels, there's some other ladies, we see that they come uh, to the tomb, and when they get there, the door is open, and the body is gone, and she goes and tells the other disciples, Peter and John, and they run to the tomb, and they find it empty except for the clothes, and then Scripture tells us that Peter saw and believed. This is a, a key passage, right? Peter saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Peter believed 
but he didn't fully understand. Do we see that in Scripture? He, he believed, but he did not fully understand. Sometimes we think we have to know everything. Sometimes we think we have to be like the seminary professor and doctor in theology before we can believe in Jesus. The truth is you're never going to know everything this side of heaven. You're just not. Right? Some of you may know more than others, but I promise you that there um, are people that know more than most of us in this room have forgotten about Jesus. So we can still believe. We can find joy knowing that not only does Jesus love you, but you can love him without knowing everything. Right? You can love him without knowing or even understanding all of him. You're not going to understand him this side of heaven. It's impossible to understand him this side of heaven. I'll be honest with you. I, I love my wife like a ton. And then I had a daughter. And it took this daughter to show me how much I don't understand about my wife at all. Melissa is so kind and patient, she just plays the game with me. Sayla calls me out, and when I do something stupid, and Melissa walks away, she just goes, Dad, you just don't understand. Right, you just don't understand. She shakes her head in disgust, and I, I, ha- I hate to admit this, but there's probably more times of misunderstanding than understanding. But the truth is, I love my wife. I love her a lot, even though I don't know what is going on sometimes. And Selah helps me navigate my misunderstanding. Um, we can still love Jesus without knowing him perfectly. Okay, don't miss that. Don't skip over that. This is one of the disciples. But anyways, we see John and Peter leave the tomb. We see that Mary returns to the tomb. And in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white standing there, the body of Jesus uh, had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Woman was a term of respect, not a disrespectful term. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell, him where you, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I heard, I heard some amens, but this is a really important part of that passage, right? Where Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Right? And this is the first truth that Jesus teaches about life is that he not only saves our lives, but he gives us life by changing our standing before God. 108 times in John, Jesus refers to God as Father. 27 times he says, my Father. 71 times he says, the Father. Only once does he refer to God as the disciple's Father. And it's here in verse 17 after the resurrection. Up until this point, Jesus only refers to God as his father. But now, after saving our lives, he brings us into the family. And he refers to God as your father, our father. He refers to the God as our God. 
It is the only time in John's gospel that the disciples are his brothers, that this is where he calls them. These are my brothers. He calls them friends a few times throughout the gospel. He says, these are my friends, or we do this for friends. But here he calls them brothers. Now they are brothers. They are no longer cut off from God. They are no longer enemies that are dead in their trespasses that are cut off from the living God. They are now family to God. Jesus saved them on the cross, but he gives them life as he brings them into his family. Right, brothers and sisters, let's come together. My brothers and sisters, this is our Father. And the, the author of Hebrews, he goes on to quote Psalm 22, and I thought this was significant because if you remember from last week, Psalm 22 is the same psalm that John quotes several times in referring to the crucifixion. It's the same scripture that John uses. The first half of this psalm speaks of the Messiah that was going to pay the price, that was going to die. The second half of it talks about the glory that is going to come. It talks about the resurrected Messiah. And we see that the letter to the Hebrews says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Right? So for he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified, so Jesus who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all of us have one source. It's God the Father. And that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, that's us, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praises. Jesus makes his people holy through his blood. It is Jesus' true followers who are made holy by his sacrifice. It is us, it is his brothers and sisters that were saved by his blood and we were made holy by his sacrifice. And since God is now our common father, we are members of one another together with one father, God. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed. After the crucifixion comes, go, go tell my brothers. Right? He's not a, ashamed of us. How many times do we wrestle, Jesus can't love me because I did this and this? No, 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 no. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. Right? Jesus loves you. Right? His suffering is completed, and so now he not only calls us his brothers and sisters, but we see in that passage in Hebrews, he calls us together to worship with him. Right? This is a picture of all the redeemed, all of those who have put their faith in Christ. They are gathered together, and they are worshiping together the Father. We're not just worshiping Jesus' Father, we're worshiping our Father. Our position has changed in front of Christ. One day, just picture this, one day we're going to gather like the Von Trapp family and we're going to worship our Father as sons and daughters. We will all sing like the Von Trapps, we'll all be blended in harmonies, but we will be blended with our brothers and sisters. If you don't know what the Von Trapps is, there's a movie called um, Sound of Music or something like that, watch it. Learned it was kind of a true story. Anyway, all right, we are family, and now we are sons and daughters of the king. Right, we are sons and daughters of the king. Jesus not only saved our lives on the cross, he gave us life by making us a part of his family. We are brothers and sisters, and we all can call the God of all creation, Abba, Father. Right, the life that Jesus gives us, we can curl up on the lap of the God of all creation, and say, Daddy, Abba, Father. And then we see that Jesus teaches us another truth as he's discussing, as he appears with the disciples. In verse 19, 
John continues, on the, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you are withheld forgiveness they, uh, from any, it is withheld. Some of your translations put that in a past tense where it says if you um, have forgiven somebody, if you have forgiven somebody, they have already been forgiven. Right? That Jesus' work has already been done and we are just proclaiming that work of Jesus. And we see that Jesus reveals another thing that he did, not just to save our lives, but to give us life, is we see that Jesus puts his power behind our purpose. And Jesus tells them, as the Father sent me, I'm now sending you. Right? I came on a, a mission, and if we look just a, a few pages before, it was just on Friday when Jesus was standing before Pilate, and Jesus said, I came to testify, I came to bear witness to the truth. That's why he was sent. The Father sent Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament and proclaim the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, you don't fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's not your role. Jesus knocked that out. Your job is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Your job is to tell people of the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope that comes with it, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming the one who filled every jot and every every tittle, every smallest part of the Old Testament, proclaiming him to those in your community. That is your job. That is our purpose in life. Right? 600 years ago, all these big theologians got together and they studied scriptures and they said, oh, what does scripture say our job is? The chief in demand is to glorify God. That is what our purpose, that is what we are to do. We are to glorify God and proclaim the name of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just say, this is your job, and then walk away. He doesn't say, hey, this is your purpose. Good luck with that one. He doesn't stop there. He gives his people the power to do so. Right? He gives them the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that gives us the power to do the purpose of the very thing he created us to do. And I know sometimes we, we question, like, well, how strong is the Holy Spirit? What can the Holy Spirit do? Let's think about this for just a few minutes. Over 2,000 years ago, no internet, no radio. There's no like electronic recording devices. There's no printing presses. Most of society is illiterate anyway, so that's not gonna be that useful. And there was this room with this handful of peasants who for the last three years really were just a traveling sideshow. They were, became a huge annoyance to the Roman government they were hated by their religious leaders of the time. And Jesus gives them the same task. He gives them this task. It's the same task that we have. He gives them this task. And within their lifetime, the gospel of Jesus is spread throughout modern-day Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, Greece, Italy, Bulgaria, Croatia, and Algeria. So let's continue thinking about this for a minute. All right, let's be honest with ourselves. In this room, we have far greater influence, far greater means, 
far greater abilities to take the gospel of Jesus to every people group in the world than that little band of misfits 2,000 years ago. Yet we have trouble figuring out how we're going to reach our community with the gospel. Right? We strategize. We even get biblical. We say, hey, we're going to see what Paul does. And we spend this time studying what Paul does. We, we use the latest tools and the latest techniques. We seek out the greatest givers. Who's going to fund this thing? Because it's going to take money. Everything always takes money. So let's make sure we have money. And we look for the best speakers. Right? Who are the ones that have charisma? Who are the ones that speak well? Who are the ones that people will, will, will listen to and they can influence? And we gather all these people. But we neglect to depend on, much less use the power that Jesus has already given us. Church, we, we struggle as a church, not just as Calvary Church, but as the big church to fulfill our purpose to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to our communities and to bear witness to the truth for our neighbors. Right? As long as we seek our own means to do so, we will never do that. We will not have enough things, but Jesus has given us power not only for our purpose, but the power to accomplish that purpose. So I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you the power. So think again. Think with me for just a minute. What could Jesus do with this little church in the middle of L.A. if we were 100% dependent on his power to accomplish our purpose? Right? Compare that, what he did with that little band of misfits, with this great group of loving, generous people that love Jesus, that love each other, that spend their whole time seeking Jesus. Think of what he could do with this room. Right? If we depended on him. If that's where our hearts were to seek his purpose. Like seriously, that's the life I want. Right? Can, you, can you imagine what it would look like to be caught up in the things of God and seeing his power fill this place and his grace pouring through our church and into our communities? Right? We'd be seeing lives changed and marriages rescued and relationships restored and hope being realized. Right? And God being glorified. He'd be glorified in our lives and in our families and in our communities. Like, that's pretty awesome. Right? Who, who would not take the life that you have right now and trade it for that? Right? Say, I, I want to be somewhere where God is glorified everywhere I go. I want to be in a center of his believers. We always talk about, oh, that's a New Testament church. We can never have that. Well, as long as we depend on ourselves, we're never going to touch that. But when we depend on God, it's amazing at what he could do, right? That is living. That is the life that he has gave us. It's living and the fulfilling the purpose that is the life that God wants to give you. That's the life that God wants you to have. That's the life that God has the power to give you. When we set our minds on the things that are above, right, not on the things of earth, and this is the biggest hindrance that we we fall under because there's a lot of shiny things on earth. And there's a lot of things that divide our attention. There's a lot of good things that distract us from God. But when we are able to set our mind on the things above, he promises us to, to be with us. He promises to walk with us. Right? And sometimes we think, oh, that's God who's carrying me and it's only his footsteps and I'm weak and all this. No, God's going to empower you to do the purpose that he gave you. That's the life that he wants you to have. He's empowered, he's empowered you to do your purpose. And he gives us life by making us part of his family and by giving us power to accomplish the purpose that he gave us. And then finally we see this last truth that he teaches us in his conversation with Thomas. 
And if you look in verse 24, it says, And now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twins, and he uh, was not with them uh, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in the hands the mark of the nails, and place my fingers in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have not seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus does not only save our life on the cross, he gives us life by giving us hope through faith. A true hope, a, a real hope. Jesus in this passage states that the real favor with God, right? The favor being blessed by God, knowing God, walking with God, does not depend upon being able to see him, but on trusting the words of the apostles. Right? For us, that's the New Testament we have, the words of the apostles. Right? They're the words of the apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit. Our hope is based on these scriptures. Our hope is based on the fullness of God's grace and its completed work that will come when Jesus returns, just as scripture promises. Right? The hope and the joy that we have in our life is based on the promises of scripture. And as believers, we have faith. Right? We long for the day when Jesus will wipe away every tear. Right? That death and mourning and crying and pain shall be no more. Right? We long for that day. We have hope for the day when those things pass away. Will it be worth it? I think about that. Will it be worth it? Without question, if you believe it. And if that's your faith, there's no, there's no time to debate. There's no time to question this. You, you, before they can finish the question, is it worth it? You're like, yes. Yes. And I'm waiting. I long for that day. Listen to what Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans. Uh, in chapter 5, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's through faith in Christ that we have been justified, that we have been declared right, that we have been made right with God once and for all. Right? When Jesus went to the cross, he said it is finished, it was done. And the result of this is that Christians, we don't have to live in fear anymore. We don't have to live in fear of judgment on is it enough? Jesus said it's finished. Right? Jesus said it's done, you are made right. We don't have to worry about am I gonna be able to face the wrath of God? You don't have to face it. Right? We can live with peace because we don't have to deal with the, the wrath of God. Jesus has already faced that so we can have a peace in our life with God. Right? This is not just some feeling that we long for, but for those of us who would put our faith in Christ, it is something that we experience. It is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that comes over us when it doesn't make sense. But that's our faith. It's a reality. And it's something that we have here and now. It's not a joy we have to wait for. Right? The joy comes in the morning. It came. It came on the first Easter morning. Jesus came out of the grave and he gave us life. It's not a peace that we have to wait until we die to go to heaven. It's a peace that we get from our hope in the living God. That we can have it right now. 
by his grace, one day we will be glorified. We will be perfected. And it's that faith, it's that belief, it's that hope that results in the joy of all believers that we have in our lives. We never, we never have to ask the question, is it worth it? And somebody says, is it worth following Jesus? Is it worth having joy in your life? Is it worth having peace in your life? Is it, what? Yes. Yes, it's, it's worth it. Are you sure? Yes. And we, we look at our, our, our lives and people look at our lives and they will say, oh, why do you have that joy or why do you have that peace or why are you that nice person? Because I know Jesus, right? I know, I, I know the living God. I know the one that gives me hope for eternity. This stuff doesn't matter. And one day we are going to rejoice in the presence of God and it is that hope that fuels our joy in our lives at, at this very moment. Don't believe the lie. You've got to wait to experience the joy of Christ. That is something you get when you give him. I was just talking with somebody the other day and they said, I I can't even explain this. I was going through a tough time. There were some things going on in their marriage, some things going on in life, some things going on in their work. Their life was tough. They didn't know Jesus. And they said it was the most strangest thing in the world. Somebody told me to pray to God and so I had no other option to go and I went to God and it was this weight just came off my shoulders. And he looks at me and goes, isn't that the weirdest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> no. Actually, in my profession, we hear about that a lot. Right? Jesus is working. Right? Jesus is alive. And it's that faith and that belief that we have in Jesus that gives us that hope and that joy. And it's that hope through our faith that gives us a real life right now. Like, right now, we can experience life in Christ. Jesus did not just save our lives. He gives us life by giving us hope through our faith in him. A hope that I said we can touch and taste and feel right at this moment. But then this chapter concludes with John bringing the resurrection understanding to his own readers. Because remember when he's writing this gospel, it's not for the people in the room. It's not for Thomas. This is for others. And we must not look at Thomas and the other disciples and envy them as though the power of Christ's resurrection can never be experienced by anybody else living today. John wrote this for others. That was why John wrote this gospel. If we look, we're going to look at it in just a minute, but it's the, so that every people in every age can know that Jesus is God and that faith in him brings you life. Right? That faith in God gives you life. Look what John writes in 30 as he concludes this chapter. He says, now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And as we read through this, we see that Mary was given life when Jesus changed her weeping to joy by declaring her new standing before God. We saw the disciples were given life when Jesus changed their fear to peace with the power that was found in his resurrection. And we know that Thomas was given life when Jesus changed his unbelief to hope. I don't have unbelief. You need to have hope. And as John concludes this portion of his letter, he now invites you to trust in Christ and be given true life. He not just died on the cross to save your life and then he he, he rose from it. Right? He rose from the dead to give you life. And now he offers you 
right? All those that are listening, he offers you the, the invitation to go from death to life. To go from forever dead to eternal life. And he gives you that invitation. Right, if you know him as your savior, the question is, do you depend on him as your life giver? And so many of us Christians are really good. I've said this before, we get baptized, right? We're the Eagle Scout of Christians. We've made it to the peak. There's nothing more, and we think we're done. But Jesus said, no, 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 that's just the start of the new life. That's just the beginning of the, the new life that I'm giving you, that I gave you. And so you need to look at your own life and say, hey, did, it, did I think I reached the top when I got baptized? Or am I living out the life that Jesus gave me to live? Am I living in the joy and the peace and the hope? And we have to look at our hearts and say, is Jesus our one true desire? Or is he one of many things? Right? Is Jesus the one true desire of my heart? Or do I have him sitting there in case of emergencies, but right now I'm going to pursue these other things, and when they fail me, at least I have a kind of good backup plan. That's not the life that Jesus gave you. And those, I'm going to tell you right now, when you're going through life, you're going to be asking yourself, is this worth it? Is it worth pursuing this? Is it worth trying to gain this? Is it worth working this hard? And if you're not pursuing Jesus, that question won't be answered until you're dead. Well, unless things go horribly wrong, which they usually do. But when you're pursuing Jesus, you will never have to wrestle with that question, is this worth it? But if you do not know him, if you've never given him your life, if you've never experienced the true life in Christ, put your faith in him today. There's no reason to wait. There's, there's, There's doesn't even make sense to be honest with you right you can experience that joy and peace it's really easy all you all you have to do is simply admit that you need him right that you you need him as your savior and you need his grace in your life and it's when he becomes your savior and it's when you experience his grace that you'll finally experience the true life that he gave you so jesus is not only a life saver he is a life giver Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your son. We thank you that he gave up his life to save our lives, Lord, and we thank you that he came into our lives to give us true and eternal life. Lord, we pray that as we try to fulfill our purpose here on earth, that we would become so dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit that your name would be glorified here in L.A., Lord, we talk about revival. We pray for revival. Lord, we want to be a part of revival here in LA, in West Hills. And Lord, we will give you our church building to start that revival in. Lord, we pray that you would grab our hearts, that you would pull us towards you, that you would limit any distractions that are competing with you. And Lord, not that you would just put your hand over them, but you would crush them and destroy them. Lord, we just love you. And Lord, we want to be a church here that is fully dependent on your power, that we would show your grace to our community, and that our lives would glorify you. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it's in your son's name of Jesus we ask all of these things. Amen.